are listening to Lone Star Community Radio on 104.5 KCZWLP Conroe and 106.1 KZCCLP Conroe and worldwide on IRLoneStar.com. I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at PlanetFord.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today. I'm your host, Dan Zintek, where we cover law enforcement issues facing uh, law enforcement with crime scene investigations, forensics. Uh, today I have co-host Shelly Rossi joining me, and we're going to talk about a case uh, that actually is recently in the news. Uh, there is an individual that was just recently paroled from TDC, and there is some question as to whether or not he should have ever been convicted, and it's related to bloodstains. Certainly we have our bloodstain expert here to somewhat clarify that. But to give you a little bit of background on the case, uh, this is a case that occurred in uh, central Texas in a town called Clifton, population of about 3,000 people. And as we talk about this case, one thing I want you to sort of get your mindset around is that this occurred in 1985. So as we start talking about evidence and start talking about things, you need to realize that the Internet was not around, cell phones were not around, uh, DNA technology that we experience today uh, is not as it was back then. So we have to deal with the technology and, and um, the things that were available as we sort of wrap our head around where now we don't think anything of um, tracking someone's cell phone or their history or those type of things. And in that day and age, when someone would leave home, uh, they may not talk to their significant other all day until they came back home. That was just a commonplace. So uh, as we go through this, we're going to be talking about a couple, um, Mickey and Joe, and they had actually known each other since elementary school. Uh, they began dating after they were in college, and uh, they uh, married each other back in 1969. Uh, they moved to Clifton in 1975 because Joe was offered a, a principal position at the school. Uh, Mickey was a teacher. And so uh, how this came about, as far as the crime, in uh, 1985, um, Mickey didn't show up for work. Uh, so uh, they got concerned. It's very unusual. And uh, they headed out to the house. Um, they notified her parents. Her parents went there, and it was actually uh, her mom who initially walked into the bedroom and found that Mickey had been shot and killed uh, somewhat in undress on the bed. And at the time, uh, her husband, Joe, who again was a principal, uh, was attending the Texas Association uh, for Secondary Principal Conference in Austin, which was about an hour and a half, two hours away from where they lived. Notice was given to him uh, by the director of the association. Uh, his reaction uh, when he found out about Mickey's death was, uh, as we would assume, he was in shock. Uh, he was crying for hours. He was uh, very upset at the news. And uh, he, of course, uh, returned home, and that's, uh, that's sort of where the uh, investigation began as they started looking into this. There were no eyewitnesses that came forward. There was nothing that uh, led anyone to, to follow up at that time to sort of check in the area. Now, 
it was um, around uh, during the time they had um, uh, Robert Thorman. Uh, he was a detective with Harker Heights, and he came in, uh, did an initial analysis uh, on the bloodstains that uh, were at the house, uh, at the crime scene, and, and there were some stains on the wall, and there were some stains on the bed. And, um, and at that point, uh, the only real statement that was made was that uh, uh, Mickey's killer was most likely standing uh, to one side or the other whenever she was killed. And that's really about the initial statement that was made. Um, during initial interviews, uh, the rangers were involved, as they commonly are in uh, rural counties that don't have uh, normal homicide detectives. And um, uh, general interviews uh, with uh, the husband. Uh, the only thing that was really mentioned was there was a, a box of money that <clears throat> normally is in the room and that money was missing, but the box really had not been disturbed much. Uh, the other concern of the community that was going on at this time is that uh, four months earlier, uh, there was a 17-year-old that was found in a wooded area that was murdered. Uh, she was sexually assaulted. She was tied up with duct tape. Uh, she had died from suffocation. Uh, and it was actually less than a mile uh, from where uh, Mickey uh, was murdered. So <clears throat> uh, about four days after the murder, Mickey's older brother comes into town. He had brought a, a private investigator. He, he wanted to dig deeper into this case. And so him and his private investigator are riding around, and while they are, uh, they make the comment that they had uh, stepped out of the car to relieve themselves, had some mud on their shoes, and uh, decided they were going to open the trunk, see if there's something to clean their, their shoes with. And this one, they come across a flashlight. And the flashlight um, has some specks of blood on it, or at least what they thought to be blood on this flashlight. Um, at that point... They drive back to the house. They're looking for people at the house instead of going to PD. Sort of strange there. But uh, anyway, that's, that's really what um, sort of the initial focus as far as this flashlight. And um, also, uh, at this point, as far as the missing money, uh, Joe uh, had contacted the investigator saying that uh, later, he had stopped for gas, and he found uh, the money. He found it in a brand, brown envelope uh, in his car. He had forgot that he had put it in there. Um, now, at the time, as far as the flashlight is concerned, again, we don't have DNA. So a lot of things back then were dealing with blood type. And as far as the blood type, um, the blood type, which was O, was what Mickey was, and it was not what Joe's blood type is. However, that's also half the population uh, uh, the general population. So it's not uh, the smoking gun, or certainly shouldn't have been, uh, but that is, that's just what people dealt with in, in 1985. Um, so with that, eight, eight days after uh, Mickey was killed is when uh, the Texas Ranger uh, went to Joe and placed him under arrest uh, for his wife's murder. So that's the very basic sort of run through as far as how this came about and and where they were and what they were doing. So I know, Chelly, you have much later involvement, but just on the initial story, can you add anything or anything uh, from that? Sure. So he was originally, um, they, they tried him first in, I believe, 1986, and then that case came back um, to the trial court, 
they had to retry him in 1989 where he was convicted. And it wasn't until the um, November of 2013 that Jesse Freud, who was in her second year at Baylor Law, um, she was interning in an office, and she picked up Joe's case to start reviewing it. And in her review of, of the trial transcripts and, and the case files, she knew that there was a problem. And so they had filed a, um, a writ in early of 2016, and then they had consulted a bloodstain analyst who read through the, the transcripts and the documentation about the blood report, the testimony, um, and, and a, just to back up for a sec, as far as because you mentioned there were two trials, and, and just so people are aware, the the first one uh, was ruled as a mistrial, but it wasn't at that point based on evidence. The reason why it was a mistrial the first time was because uh, the there was a three hundred or at initial trial it was said that there was a three hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy on Mickey, and that was actually incorrect. And there was a de deposition that was done with the insurance company that the defense was not allowed to put into evidence. And because the judge had ruled against the defense allowing that information, it's because of trial procedure that, sure. it, was, uh, that it was not dismissed, but basically it was, it was faulty proceeding. There would have to be another trial. And that's what the uh, retrial was, which went pretty much about like the first one, uh, that it, it covered some very basic stuff. He was found guilty and then on to, as you said, this is years later I mean, as far as 2013 that she gets involved. Sure. So, yeah, in 1989, he's convicted of murdering Mickey Bryan. There was a change of venue to um, Comanche, which the same DA covers three counties. So um, Comanche, Bosque, and Hamilton County. And so that's like a, a district for, because it is so rural. Um, Clifton's about two hours west of Waco. So Waco is kind of the big city for those rural Texas towns. Um, so Joe is, is convicted, he's sent to TDC. And so in looking at, um, now we go fast forward to 2013, where we've got an intern, you know, second, second year of law school. And so Jesse reads, um, you know, all the, the trial dockets or the trial, um, materials and recognizes immediately that there there is obviously error in in the testimony um, as I said they con consulted with a bloodstain expert that was referred to them and um, that person had highlighted some um, very erroneous work and testimony and that's when they filed the complaint October 2016 with the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which we've talked about before on this show. Right. So, and to give a little update, so the Texas Forensic Science Commission uh, was created uh, for the purpose of, uh, to appoint this, it's to make sure that the disciplines are used properly, correctly, that there's not, um, you know, false statements being given, that people are not going to jail uh, based on um, not using the disciplines properly, or uh, to challenge whether the discipline is good, right? A absolutely. Which, um, you know, really brought into question whether bloodstain pattern analysis was a sound scientific discipline. 
um, because of the work that was done in this case. So as far as, um, as, far as going to our blessing, so the initial thing that I had read on it, uh, again, was that the initial statement made, now this is, this is prior to the flashlight being found. This is just initial walkthrough of the scene that nothing could really be determined uh, besides just what side maybe the person was standing when they shot, right? So um, was there something prior to that, or was it when the flashlight came in that that, that somehow started this road of, of making some statements that weren't uh, were too broad, I guess? No, it started initially at the, the initial crime scene processing. Um, as you had mentioned, three Texas Rangers were there assisting the Clifton PD with the investigation. Um, they had um, a colleague from another agency from Harker Heights Police Department that had just attended a introductory uh, bloodstain class that was taught by Tom Bevel. Um, that class was four months, like I said, prior, and it was taught in, ba or in Beaumont. Uh, they knew that he had gone through this, this class, and so they called him to see if they, he could come to Clifton and assist in the investigation. Um, and so the DPS crime lab had already been there, had collected, you know, the evidence had collected the bedding. So when Detective Thorman arrived, the, you know, the bedding had been collected, Mickey had been um, removed and, and transported to the medical examiner's office. And so Robert Thorman's investigation uh, began kind of late into that crime scene process. Um, so there was, immediately he was doing work and giving conclusions based on, on his assessment. Which, is, which was his 40 hours of training, right? Correct. And so when they're saying that, hey, uh, let's get him here because he obviously knows more than we do, it's just because they didn't have the 40 hours training. They, they hadn't gone through 40 hour class. They heard someone had some training in it, bring him there. Sure. Right. And, you know, and that's, that sort of brings um, to question, okay, what, what makes an expert, right? And I guess depending on whatever definition you're going to use, I mean, if, if the basic definition is if you know a little bit more than the average person, okay, well, then yeah, I guess 40 hours means you know a little bit more, right? Um, but that's not been the standard as far as courts accepting a scientific discipline. Uh, it's not just scratching the surface. It's actually uh, being a practitioner of it, having experience in it, not just knowing the basic knowledge, right? Right, and I think we've talked about before on this this podcast that you, know, you can sit in a class and you can listen to instruction a week, you know, 40 hours, eight to five, Monday through Friday, and it doesn't mean that you understand it to a degree of, of scientific knowledge. And it was very apparent that in not only reading Robert Thorman's initial report, but reviewing two trial transcripts that the foundational training that he received, he didn't understand the concepts. Well, and that goes to, I mean, you instruct, you, you teach bloodstain, I teach photography. So, I mean, let's face it, okay, out of the 20 students, 25 students, okay, they're not all A students, right? They're, all, they're not all... Uh, grasping the concepts uh, completely. I mean, there's some superstars that we have come through the class, and there's some others that, that barely struggle to, to get out of it, right? So, yeah, just because you have the 40 hours doesn't mean that you have full concept. And I've also seen people that because they go through it, they 
make some statements they believe that they they think are true that they think they got out of that but they, they haven't got the whole concept they haven't wrapped their head around it sure and it all comes back to the dunning-kruger effect where you have a little bit of training with little to no experience and that elevates you to thinking that you have an expertise that you don't have you haven't put that into practice you haven't had the the foundation to have that false you know expertise so so looking at uh, you know just some other things as far as what came up at, at trial um, because we have to go back you know what what was the solid evidence because you know as we talk about and we haven't got there yet but as we talk about the flashlight which seems to be the big thing that they they harp on but the other things they bring up you know uh, because you have to question as many thing in, in all of our cases we hardly ever uh, weigh a whole case on one piece of evidence, right? Sure. I mean, uh, and maybe that's a progression. Maybe that's, you know, I'm speaking 1985 to, you know, current 2020, but um, normally we have to have way more than that to say this particular person. And, you know, some some basic things that they had brought up was... Well, if we can talk yeah. about the... Let, yeah, let's ahead. just stop on the flashlight. So the flashlight is problematic because when... Mickey's older brother, Charlie Blue, came to town. Joe let Charlie and this private investigator use his car. And like you had mentioned, they, they had been in this car for several days, four days. When they stop on the side of the road, they open the trunk, they see this flashlight. The flashlight's turned over. Um, it's given to the ranger. And so Joe had not been in possession of his car, but then they find this flashlight. They see what appears to be blood, like small blood droplets or spatter stains on this flashlight. Um, that flashlight's immediately taken to the DPS lab in Waco. It's analyzed by a chemist, and she reports that typo blood is found on this flashlight. Um, you know, and you can get typo blood from other things besides human blood. You can get a, a positive for type O um, by things that aren't even blood. But she records that the that she gets a type O. That flashlight is then immediately taken to the DPS crime lab in Austin because of them having more advanced um, technologies and equipment to do a test. So today we would call that like a peer review, okay? Right. Or um, but that that's not what they called it then. And so within five days. Austin reports that they cannot replicate the original chemist's findings. So that would be like, in today's day and age, it would be like I look at a fingerprint, I say, oh, it's the right thumb of Dan Zintek. I pass it off, and another latent print examiner, Leslie McCauley, says, I'm not getting Dan Zintek, right? Right, so you can't use it, right. Correct. And no one has ever been able to replicate... Pat Almanza's original findings. And so she comes up with this type O positive, but then no other analyst or chemist was able to ever get a, like, the now, same do you conclusion. Know, do you know if that goes for the, because um, Almanza also said that um, she was talking about fragments, not just the blood, but she was talking about She the was fragments. talking about blue particle pieces. Right. That Now, she was claiming that same similar properties that were found at the scene were found there. Now, was that also, I say discredited, but was that also one of those things they couldn't conclude, or, or was it just the blood, or what did they come up with on that? 
So the she was saying that the blue particle pieces were similar to the 410 shot shell that was found at the crime scene. Um, that is outside of my expertise. I, I know very little about like particles and paint right. and composition. So I did not address the blue particle pieces. They, the Texas Forensic Science Commission brought in someone else to address that. Um, I just didn't know if in the in the second report if if they said similar things like it couldn't be concluded or, or whatever that dismissed that. But um, basically, it wouldn't have been in the report that you got because it wouldn't involve a blood stain, right? So uh, other things that were brought up as far as the flashlight was saying that you know well his fingerprints were on the battery, his fingerprint were on the lens. Well, he never denied that it was his flashlight. I mean, and if you own a flashlight and you put batteries in it, that your fingerprints be on. So that. Um, that's the type of evidence that was sort of thrown up at trial, right? So, so tell us as far as, I guess, what in his report, what was he claiming as far as his flashlight? Why did this flashlight play such a, a big factor in his, his testimony, meaning his, the, the bloodstain expert? Sure. So when they found the flashlight, um, Robert Thorman had already, I mean, he was long gone from the crime scene. So I assume that the ranger, someone notified Robert Thorman that they found this flashlight. It had what they believed was blood specks on it. Um, at trial, he testified that that because of finding these specks on the flashlight, that meant that Joe was holding the flashlight on Mickey as he shot her. And that's how the specks got on the flashlight. Um, the problem that I had in looking at the flashlight is it appears that there's just random directionality and the early photographs of it, it didn't even look like it was translucent, like it was either like uh, motor oil or, or power steering fluid. Um, it, it just had a really opaque kind of, or a, a translucent. So he, so he was claiming back spatter, right? So he's claiming back spatter, but it, it's on, you know, and he's claiming that Joe was holding it at the time of the event. Um, that like he was spotlighting Mickey. In so order what to would shoot you her. expect to see if it was back spatter? So I, I would expect to see, you know, dark, dried, bloody specks, and then I would expect to see directional stains on the the sides and the top of the flashlight. Um, but the the staining was just random. Um, the DNA results when they went back and tested the flashlight. They got DNA on the handle of the flashlight, but none of that was Joe's. Now, like you said, when we started, our evidence collection methods back in 1985, right, because we weren't preserving for DNA. So I'm sure right. that everybody that saw the flashlight picked the flashlight up with bare hands. and Passed it around the table. Hey, absolutely. Take a look at this. Right. Everyone looked at it. Probably the, 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 the laboratories right. looked yep. at it. Um, and because we didn't get DNA... They didn't get DNA samples from the scene investigators that it probably is going to be a cross-contamination by the scene investigation. Um, but we did get, you know, presumptive, presumptive testing is a lot different than actually getting a DNA profile. And so in trying to address the, the staining on the flashlight, I went to our cases from 1985 because um, we store those, and we had the same storage, you know, um, criteria that probably the DPS lab it 
sure, did. Right. You know, we didn't store things in climate control buildings um, up until the 90s. And so I just went through and I pulled evidence from, you know, bloodstained evidence from 1985. I tested it with one of our presumptive tests that had the, the least sensitivity because I thought if I can get a positive presumptive on, on our least sensitive, least sensitive then yeah. something that is utilized now in a state lab, right, that it should test. Um, out of 12 cases that I pulled, I had 11 presumptive tests on everything that appeared to me to be blood, and it reacted immediately. Now, the DNA on all those items we right. may or may not get, but it was positively reacting with a presumptive. Um, on the 12th one, it was on like blue indigo dyed shorts. And with the leukomalachite green, I did not get an immediate presumptive. So then I switched to a presumptive called phenolphthalein, which is the, which is a very sensitive test. And I got an immediate reaction with the phenolphthalein. But on all the other, so all 12 cases that I pulled, I had 12 presumptive tests. I say that because when um, the chemist or the analyst at DPS Waco looked at the flashlight in 2018, none of those stains test, one stain tested positive presumptive, and it was like on the back of the flashlight, but nothing on the front of the flashlight, nothing on the sides of the flashlight tested positive with a presumptive. So, I mean, the, the big question with that is, so, I mean, you're, you're making a, a statement that possibly it's not blood, right? But they're saying that they got a type O for blood on it. So how, um, how does that link? So I, I'm, I'm not sure how that happens. I, I mean, we could, we could speculate all day long. My concern is that a statement was made to a ranger that they had a specific blood type and five days later, when the, you know, the DPS Austin lab looked at it in their bench notes, they say that on nothing on that flashlight can they replicate the findings from DPS Waco. And so that to me is very concerning sure. on, you know, how does that happen? And I'm not sure that uh, Pat Almanza ever rectified. You know, I mean, nowadays we would, our concern would be that it was dry labbing, right? That you just, it looks like blood. We're just going to, what's Mickey's blood type, O type? Well, it's probably type O. But I don't want to make, you know. Sure. And, and again, it goes back. I mean, things things have definitely changed from 85 to now, right? Sure. So, I mean, uh, what could have been normal standard practice and not uh, with the purpose uh, of giving out bad information, but that was just normal practice back then is certainly different than today. You know, I mean, some other uh, forensic evidence uh, that came up that really was never clarified uh, they found um, two human hairs uh, found in the cardboard box of the trunk that were did not belong to either Joe um, uh, or his wife. Uh, they had 13 latent prints in the master bedroom. Uh, uh, again, that could have been before the murder, but uh, those did not belong to them. Uh, palm print on the headboard, it did not match uh, Joe's. Uh, the problem is with Mickey's uh, palms, they were taking an autopsy and apparently... Um, when they took them, it was performed incorrectly, so uh, it couldn't be used for comparison. So there were there were other things uh, that were out there that obviously uh, didn't get tested. Um, but so uh, back to the back to the bloodstain. Back to um, we talk about problems with the flashlight. Were there uh, 
you made comments of problems with the, the initial assessment, the, the blood stains on the bed, and I'm gathering that they did the, uh, what we call it, 3D modeling, where we have a positional type of thing and, and whatnot. So we're, there are some issues with that? Yes, so without going into the, just generally, the methodology that is that was taught um, by Tom, I had the benefit of reviewing my lieutenant's blood stain manual that he took um, from Tom in 1989, and a lot of, most of the materials that were in the manual from 1989 were the same materials that I was trained under in 2003. So, you know, the, everything has pretty much remained consistent from, you know, the very beginning coursework in bloodstain. And so in looking at Robert Thorman's initial report, he took the instruction on how to, the methodology on how to do specific processes, like, you know, finding an area of convergence, finding an area of right. origin, which means in three-dimensional space where a, you know, where a person was or the source of blood, where it would have come from, he did not identify the correct pattern, right? There was another wall that should have been utilized instead he used the wall behind the bed. Um, he then improperly took strings from blood stains and then strung them to the saturation stain in the middle of the bed, but then made a comment in trial that, you know, it's because he didn't have the sheets. Well, the whole um, science behind doing an area of origin is it all not, you need is the stain or right. not going to all the you saturation. need is the, the stains you right. don't need anything else in the room if you had the back wall if there was an impact pattern on the back wall you use individual stains from that impact pattern and just based on the, the angle, angle I mean, the most simplistic the, thing is, yes. is, is stains can give you an angle and it's yep. what angle that string or whatever you're using is coming off of there correct and so you could have removed the carpet the bed the headboard all the furniture in the room and if you had that back wall, you could then correctly determine where Mickey was at one of the four times that she was shot. It's not going to tell you what shot it was. Um, he then went on to extrapolate that his strings, because he only used five stains, that his strings only crossed in three places. And that's because you, you know, he learned that she was shot four times. But the reason why it only crossed in three places is because for the first three shots, she was alive, but for the last one, she had already expired because you don't get blood from a dead body. And so he just <laughs> said these very, and, and it's, it, right. it is, it's very, it's comical to... To someone who, who understands and... Yeah. Yes, because it's like, wait, he said what? You know, and, and so it was those kind of things that, that he just matter-of-factly stated, you know, in, in both trials. And you know, from the trial in 1986 and then the trial again in 1989, his testimony was almost identical. So that says to me that from the training he initially had in 1985, by the time he's testifying in 1989, he's had no additional training. That's what I was about to ask. So he, does not, he does not comprehend the, what, what he's testifying was to. Was he still a detective at the second trial? Yes. So he was still out there. He was still sure. practicing with the still limited training. Right, and, and he did testify that while this was the first bloodstain case that he had worked, 
since that time, he's had lots of experience in other crime scene cases. And so for someone like me that's now going back looking at what he's testifying to, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's, there's, more, there's more Joes out there that potentially you know, are sitting in prison based on a person that does not understand the fundamentals of what he's testifying to. Right, and and uh, you know to also be clear, I mean it, it requires more than just a, um, I guess a bad investigator uh, on top of it. You um, you have to have a lot of people involved in in looking at the case. The thing that really stood out to me was just the, uh, the again the lack of evidence. It's a very small amount of evidence that's used to uh, put someone in prison for life. Um, but again, I, I guess maybe that has to do with the rural town. Maybe it has to do with uh, the fact, like I said, they had two murders in four months in a town that probably has not had murders in years. Uh, they're looking for someone. They're looking to to clear this, put someone in, in prison. Um, so, uh, again, there's a lot of factors that, that go into that. But uh, that being said, with, with uh, his testimony, um, and along with, I, I know there were numerous appeals along the way. Was he involved in the appeal? Did anybody approach him on this to, to try to rectify some of his comments and things? They did. Um, I think it's important also to note, though, that, you know, when, like, the biggest question that I get is, okay, like, how did this, how did this one guy, right, how did this one guy, you know, get, you know, why was his testimony so important, Okay. And so when you think about it, if you're a juror, okay, in, in 1985 without the resources that we have, and you have a guy that walks in and he says, this is who I am. I was notified by three Texas Rangers because I possess a skill set that the Rangers don't have. So they needed me. So I came in and, you know, he answered the, all the questions, right? Who? Joe Bryan did it. Um, you know, how? Well, he drove to Austin. He then got in his car with an eye condition that prevented him from driving at night in a rainstorm, drove 120 miles back to Clifton, shot his wife four times while holding a flashlight on her, changed clothes, got back in a car because there was no blood ever found inside of his car, got back in his car, drove back to Austin, didn't have a wreck, didn't stop for gas, didn't no one, you know, didn't break down, parked in the same spot that he had left the Hyatt Regency downtown in, parked his car in the exact same spot like it was left open, um, showed up downstairs at the hotel for breakfast, met yeah. with all of his other principal friends, was attending the principal conference when he was pulled out of the conference to tell when he's told that Mickey had been killed. And so he tells, he testifies that all of these things happened. He gives an explanation, you know, or, or there's testimony that gives an explanation of why Joe would do this. Um, you know, he tells the when, he tells, you know, the where. Um, and, and so he answers all the questions. And, and, you know, the defense doesn't call a bloodstain expert to refute what Robert Thorman says. But... You know, it's like, how do you, in 1985 in rural Texas, how do you find a bloodstain expert? You don't open up the phone book. To, you don't go to Indeed or any other. Right. You don't yeah. look in the yellow pages for forensic right. expert. Um, you know, and so, and so much so that even on cross-examination, 
the defense, when they kind of question him about some things that just seem bizarre uh, about what he's saying, and, and he, he testifies to very what he believes is scientific fact, such as that blood on, like, regular carpet, um, you know, it, so he says all blood in a crime scene is dry within seven minutes. Um, he said blood evaporates after 46 inches, so he knows that, you know, Joe was standing at least 46 inches away because that's how come blood didn't get on him, but yet supposedly it got on the flashlight. He testified that he'd never seen the flashlight until trial, but now that he's looked at it, then he starts giving all of these opinions about what it is, how it occurred. Um, then he testifies that blood on shag carpet dries four, maybe five seconds faster than regular carpet because of the prongs that stick up. I mean, So basically all the things that any statement like you just made would be defined by replicated tests over and over and over and many people coming to the same conclusion with, let's use your shag carpet one, for example, that we had tested shag carpet over and over and over and every single time it dried four to five seconds faster. Every single time and we had that replicated that you would say that, right? Um, but obviously that's not the case. It's, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like he's jumping. And again, there's, I can see by some of the statements uh, where he's pulling things from, right? Sure. I mean, if you go to the basic class, they talk about blood interacting with different substrates. It's going to interact with tile differently, with uh, shag carpet differently. I mean, there's even a picture in Bevel's book of, of every blood stain on different things, right? Sure. Uh, so I can see, like, where you're yanking that from. Right. It's, it's like he, he's just pulling, like, he's connecting, you know, concepts or he's connecting, you know, something that Tom teaches on and then he's adding it to something else. And then in one part he testifies that, with the strings, with this math that he did with these strings, told him was how far the shooter was standing away from Mickey at the time the shot was fired. So he's mixing bloodstain pattern analysis with shooting incident reconstruction and, you know, muzzle to target distance determination type stuff. It, it's just very bizarre, but it's very, it's, it's stated very, you know, factually, it's stated very scientifically. He's got precise times and, and measurements and all of which, you know, I mean, he didn't measure. He didn't say anything about He didn't photograph the stains that he used. Um, I mean, it was, it was so shocking for me to read that. I, it was a Sunday afternoon by the time I got through with the trial transcripts, and I'm trying to call the Forensic Science Commission going, we have to do something. Like, this is... So now, when was the last time that he was involved in any of this? I mean, was he, like, when the Forensic Science Commission got, did they involve him and, like, question him about this or that, or was he just sort of out of the picture at that point where he's looking at transcripts and his, his testimony and such? So in 2015, Jesse Freud, uh, Joe's attorney, went to Robert Thorman and said, hey, can you please, because she picked up the case in 2013, she went to him and said, hey, I need you to review your report, and I need you to review these trial transcripts. Um, and so then he signed an affidavit that said, I've reviewed my report, I've reviewed the trial transcripts, and what was, what I, the work I did in 1985 is still supported today. Okay. Um, he, had, he was retired by 2015, and so he signed an affidavit that said, yep, that was my work in 1985, I stand by it still today, which then is even more disturbing because it means that you know, it was bad from 1985 to 1989, 
that he had received no additional training, but obviously he'd received nothing from 1985 till 2015. And they would have changed his opinion on because on 1985. His, his opinion didn't change, and it wasn't until the hearings in 2018 that he finally um, admitted that his his findings were incorrect. So, what do you think changed his mind? On was it just interviews with other bloodstain experts and being challenged enough on it, or? Um, he reviewed the trial transcript um, from Tom Bevel uh, in August and September of 2018. There was a habeas corpus uh, three-day hearing in which um, I testified on behalf of Joe, on behalf of the defense. Um, Tom actually was retained by the state, and um, he testified for um, the that district and... You know, our findings were very, were very similar. And so when Robert Thorman saw that Tom, the person that in, instructed, instructed him, right. said that his statements work were, and statements were um, scientifically unsupportable, then he wrote an affidavit that basically said he's aware that he didn't do some things correctly. He didn't apply the correct application. Um, however, he said, but I didn't lie. So he didn't make it up. He just didn't, I mean, he, he made it up, but he just didn't understand right. how, he didn't understand the concepts. He didn't understand the methodology. He didn't purposely try to sway. He didn't make it up with the purpose. No, he believed what he was right. saying He, he believed was it true. even though it was inaccurate and taken to a different, different way. Uh, so getting on to the appeal process, because, I mean, obviously we're, we're speaking of, uh, again, uh, 2018, 2016, I guess, or 2015, I think he said. Um, and obviously, as, as we'll get to, um, you know, he wasn't let out of prison uh, until last month. March so, 31st. So so basically, uh, where are we at on the appeal? What What's happening on the appeal between 2015 and this year? So in 2015, um, they went to him, he... he wrote the affidavit that said, nope, that's, that's science. Um, in 2016, the, they filed a complaint with the Forensic Science Commission. Okay? The commission reviews it. Um, in, 20, in the spring of 2017, Pam Koloff, who um, is a writer-reporter for ProPublica and the New York Times, right. did a deep dive into Joe's case. And in... Um, May of 2018, she published a two-part series that goes really in-depth. Um, and that's actually where a lot of this came from. This is part of her work, uh, and actually both uh, a link to ProPublica's announcement when he was released and to the two-part investigation is on uh, crimescenaday.com, and it's also on our, our Facebook uh, posting on this. Awesome. You know, and I mean, Pam did an amazing job. You know, there was a in the articles, really um, detail. She did a fabulous job at at chronicling this whole story. Um, you know, she's she's not a fan of bloodstain pattern analysis, um, and rightfully so, right? Because of how she came at it, you know, and what she was faced with, and looking what it did to Joe. I completely support her position on that. Um, I try to change your mind going, hey, look, like, let's compartmentalize that and, like, let's put that, you know, 
right. over here. And, and um, but you know, she really is very passionate about what she does. Um, equally so is how much I'm passionate about what I do. And, you know, she really is an amazing woman. She's an amazing writer, um, you know, and she's my friend. And um, I appreciate what she did by bringing Joe's story to the forefront. So she did that in 2018. Yep. And I know she had a couple of videos and things interviewed with them and stuff. So what happened after 2018? So I was asked by the Forensic Science Commission at the end of April to look at this case, to um, advise the commission on all aspects that dealt with bloodstain and bloodstain pattern analysis. So that's kind of where I came into Joe's case. I issued a report um, to the commission that was on their July of 2018 um, quarterly meeting. And then in September, um, August, and, or August and September, um, I actually became the expert for the defense. So because of, of my report to the commission basically saying that the bloodstain work that was done was scientifically unsupportable. Um, and then, you know, gave examples, kind of what we talked about here. Uh, and then we had the three-day habeas corpus hearing that was in Comanche. Um, they brought in a visiting judge. And after three days of, of testimony, the, each side, the state and the defense, um, had to file their findings of facts and conclusions of law. Um, there were seven points of relief that the defense asked for um, on several different things. And then I think it was December of that year that Judge Shaver just basically said that he concluded with the state and that he found no grounds for any of the points of relief. And that was when? What year was so that? So that was December of 2018. Okay. And so then in 2019, Joe came up for parole for his seventh time. It was denied. Um, and, you know, the, the thing with that is, you know, he had spent 30-plus years in prison, but he was not going to admit to something that he did not do, and he wasn't going to try to take the easy way out. And so his position was, I did not kill my wife, and I am not going to say that I'm remorseful because I didn't kill her. Right. And so they were like, parole denied. And so he has, that process has been repeated seven times because they want people to say they're remorseful and right. they're, remorseful and they're sorry. Right. And he's like, okay, I, I am not going to go against God by trying to take the easy way out by admitting to something I did not do. I did not kill my wife. And so it, he just sat for 2019 he just sat and he had another birthday and, you know, he deals with um, congestive heart failure. So his health is not good. He's diabetic. So he's got that working against him. Um, and then so we rock into 2020 and then we have COVID that is. Now, did anything happen between the 2019, when the judge says, I agree with the state? Is there any other hearings, any sure. other appeals so then that have it's, happened before then? It's appealed to the um, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin. And so immediately that was filed after um, Judge Shaver rubber stamped it. They, there was some other stuff that they were waiting on out of um, Eastland, the appellate court in Eastland. And that came back that, um, and I, I'm not really that really didn't deal with blood stain, so I know a little bit about it, but not enough to explain it. 
Um, but there was that cooking, and then the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin um, denied his his, his request appeal. Or whatever, yep. his appeal. And so then that felt like, okay, like what else is there? Like the only thing left, right, other than a pardon um, by the president, the, I think you can go to the U.S. Supreme Court, which I think is where it's at now, and or that's where it's heading, um, is to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so that a pardon or um, is really like the last the last step. And so now after that, so basically we've we've had uh, one court of criminal appeals that have said um, basically we're we're not touching it. We, we've had one judge say we agree with the state. We've had another say we're not even looking at it. Um, so in March. Uh, last day of March, okay, he is released on parole. Uh, so even as of today, as far as the state is concerned, as far as any type of documentation, uh, he is still guilty of murder. If you look at his, uh, his criminal history, it would say he was convicted of murder, uh, he was released on parole, he is still, and I would imagine have to still meet any requirements of a parolee and being on parole, uh, but uh, March 31st, he was able to at least get out of prison uh, see his family, and uh, he is now 79 years old, uh, living in Houston and, um, and enjoying uh, whatever part of his life uh, that is left. Uh, of course, uh, that always goes to the uh, original issue whenever we have somebody who uh, has been put in prison um, that did not commit a crime is that the real murderer uh, did not get punished and that is either still out there and usually in these type of cases is either died off for some other reason uh, uh, or is in prison for something else that we never find. Um, so in, I think the last I read, yeah, it's supposed to be going to some type of federal appeal, now whether that's for civil rights violation or, or uh, whether some type of constitutionality issue up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but um, uh, at that point, at least right now, he is he is not sitting in prison for this uh, based on that. Now, to go back to bloodstain, though, uh, to wrap up as far as that, um, do you feel this case has somehow hurt the credibility of bloodstain? Well, I think it's called it into question, and I think ultimately it's going to it's going to benefit bloodstain because it really spotlights the need for, you know, a, an introductory course is not sufficient to make someone an analyst. Even, you know, an introductory course and an additional 40-hour course is not sufficient for someone to then go into a courtroom and testify to bloodstain pattern analysis. So I really think that, that you know, it has alerted the court system. It's alerted, you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges and the appellate system of, you know, kind of what should be required and the vetting that we should do for anyone that is coming in to, to testify to bloodstain pattern analysis. So I think that that, that is amazing. I think that, that with the Forensic Science Commission, you know, is doing is amazing um, so that at least in the state of Texas we are kind of raising the bar on who can do this work and who can testify to it um, 
you know, hopefully other states are following suit. I, I, I know that other countries are definitely more stringent than the United States on who they will allow to testify as experts. So I think in the, in the short run, right, it was very, like, shocking to, you know, people that, that were children in 1985. Um, but, you know, kind of after you rip the Band-Aid off, then it's like, okay, this is a problem, and we need to come up with a solution to this problem. Well, and I think as far as a problem, you know, bloodstain as a whole, um, it's, a, it's a science, and it's been challenged as a science, but, I mean, it's, it's physics of liquid dynamics, right? I mean, that's it. That doesn't change. That's there. It's the, the science is solid. It's when you put the human factor in it as far as the expertise and what they're interpreting that seems to lead uh, to the questionability that ends up in, in testimony, right? Sure. You know, um, so, you know, as, as we wrap up uh, this, and I appreciate all your work on this case, because I know one of our, um, you know, one thing that we always are concerned about, it's one reason we work so hard on our cases, is the last thing we ever want to do is to put an innocent person in prison. We want the right people to go there. Um, so uh, we... As we always say, we're, we're not working to put someone in jail. We're working uh, uh, for the truth to make sure that we have the, the right person there. Um, I know that ProPublica did a, a great story on this. And uh, one piece of evidence that we didn't talk about that I'll have uh, listeners go and they can look at uh, the story themselves. There was a cigarette butt that was found uh, that is questionable. Uh, years later, that cigarette butt uh, belonged or believed to belong to a police officer uh, it has been brought into question whether that police officer was involved in this case, uh, also whether he was involved in that 17-year-old uh, that was murdered. So, and he uh, was actually, he was actually named as the suspect that killed um, Judy Whitley. Yes. So yeah. he was. At, I mean, they they cleared Judy Whitley's case based on him, based yeah. on Dennis Dunlap killing her. And Dunlap committed suicide, so he's not around anymore to actually question about this one, but there is some belief that there's possibly connections. So you can read uh, that. Just follow the links on our page to uh, the ProPublica story. Uh, thank you again for always tuning in. And if you have any uh, comments or questions, if you'd like to see somebody appear on the show, just contact me, dan, at crimescenaday.com. If you'd like to sponsor the show, reach out to me. We always thank our Lone Star Radio for uh, taking good care of us. Uh, we'll tune in next week. Thank you.